so uh, this morning we'll be in uh, the book of Revelation in chapter 21. If you do have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open to that chapter. I'd like to pray, uh, do a little introduction, and then we'll read uh, the first seven verses of chapter 21 together in, in just a couple minutes. So would you just join with me? Let's ask for God's Spirit to help. What's about to happen here is, is nothing except for God's Spirit come, touch it, bless it, put His hand upon it, and in a sense, sow it into our hearts this morning. And that's a work of the Spirit, so let's ask for that, that help from Him. Father, we do come humbly before you filled with faith as we open up the scriptures read and preach hear and receive lord this requires the element of your spirit to make it real to make it powerful and so we pray we pray the phrase that's often in the book of revelation lord give us ears to hear and eyes to see Ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, eyes to see what the Spirit is doing. Lord, open wide our hearts to receive and fill it, fill them with your word. And that word sown in to bear good fruit in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Richard Baxter was a highly regarded pastor in England back in the 1600s. Uh, he was well known in his community and abroad in, in Christendom and is to this day highly respected, highly regarded as really one of the most effective pastors in, in church history. You can't talk about great pastors in church history without including Richard Baxter. He pastored in a town called Kidderminster and uh, there was a population of about 2,000, and it's been said that he basically converted the whole town, uh, catechized, discipled them in the faith, and the effects of his care and pastoral work was known in that city for well over a century after his passing. And to this day, his, his writings just continue to inspire and instruct and, and, and help us uh, in fact, if you have any thoughts of becoming a pastor, his book, The Reformed Pastor, is just a must-read. Just Let me just declare it. You cannot be a pastor until you've read Richard Baxter's Reformed Pastor. You, you need that. It's required reading. Richard Baxter was almost always sick. He was a very sickly man. He had so, so many ailments. He was convinced that he had tuberculosis from his early 20s and so he lived his life with a constant cough and as Tim Bauer and J.I. Packer uh, have written much about him would write this he said frequent nosebleeds migraine headaches digestive ailments kidney stones gallstones they concluded it like this they said he was a virtual museum of diseases that was this man's life in fact Near the end of his life, he said he couldn't recall a day since he was 21 years old that, he was, that his body wasn't wrecked with pain. When he was about 35 years old, he was in bed and very sick. And when I say in bed, I mean for several months in bed. And he, at that point, was convinced he was going to die. And so while in bed, convinced he's on his essential deathbed, he decided it would be well and wise for him to start thinking about heaven. And so he began a study 
and a meditation upon heaven. Out of that came what is still a very helpful and a very well-known book, uh, The Saints Everlasting Rest. You can get that to this day and read that and be encouraged by that. And at that point in his life, he began a practice of meditating on heaven 30 minutes every day. Now, Richard Baxter was a prolific writer. He's written volumes, over 140 books, and some of his books are more useful to prop up your computer monitor because they're as big as the Oxford Dictionary. It's just he's written a lot. But of all his studies and all that he's written, he made a statement later in life. He says, of everything I've studied, nothing has benefited me more than my study and meditations on heaven. Nothing has affected my life more. Nothing has been more useful to me in this life than my thoughts of the next life. I'm under a suspicion that in the modern church today that thinking about heaven is a bit out of vogue and that we don't do it enough. That it's somehow slipping into the margins of the main message and who we are as a church and what we think about and get our strength from as Christians, and I'm coming under a growing conviction that this is a serious mistake for us as a church. So in spite of uh, some of the most popular preachers of the day that would talk about your best life now and focus on several principles that I could tell you today that you could put into practice tomorrow and you'll have a great week next week, Throughout church history, from the very beginning, the real strength and power of the church has really found much of that source in the hope and thoughts and clarity of the next life. And that's what I want to encourage you with this morning. It might be a long shot, but I want to persuade you to spend more of your time thinking, considering, pondering the next life. The theory is this. If you meditate on heaven, that will produce strength and equip you for today. We're looking at the book of Revelation, which is in essence sort of the theory behind the book of Revelation. Here's the concept that this book was written into. There were several churches that were experiencing all kinds of struggles and problems, both within and without. Life was hard. And they needed encouragement. They needed strengthening. They needed something to help them through what was now, we could look at church history and say, was the worst of times for the church. And so the letter was written, fabulously, wonderfully written, this um, this style, this apocalyptic uh, genre of literature with all these colorful images and, 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 and strange things in there, all to communicate this idea. I want to give you a picture of the whole story of redemption from beginning to end, and I want to emphasize the end. And I want you to know that the end is so glorious and so good and so appealing 
that as you see that and as you realize that, you will, with that hope, find strength for today. It will equip you. It will empower you. And the contrast of how great and how glorious the future is, is so much that, that even through the worst of times and the greatest of troubles and tribulations, you'll still think you've got the best deal going. You'll still think it's worth it. You'll say strange things like, these trials are light and momentary. And why could you say that? Only because you're fully and more aware of the contrast of what you have to come. So in that sense, that future empowers today. And we know from church history, it actually worked. You know, the reason we're here today, the reason the gospel made it as far as it did to your heart, to my heart, that we would be gathered here this morning we be, was because that first century church actually made it through. Now, I don't know if we can ever fully appreciate the trouble that they were in, but now if you can just kind of imagine the governments that were the world powers that you lived in submission to had set themselves out to basically annihilate Christianity. And we don't live in that world some people on the planet do but that was the world that they lived in following jesus was costly belonging to christ made their lives far more difficult than they would have been had they simply denied the faith the book was written to strengthen them in that situation they heard it they received it they believed it they lived their lives out of it, and the church not only survived, but thrived. Miraculously thrived. Christianity was stronger because of it. We're here today because of it. We can be grateful to God and John who wrote it, and the churches who heard it and received it and believed it, and we ought to do the same. Revelation chapter 21 is sort of late in the book. Much has happened until then, but I just want to jump in there and draw your attention to our future. We've been through all kinds of stuff in the book of Revelation prior to this. Chapter 20 was the final culmination of everything. The whole story is sort of coming to a close. Everything is gathered together. It looks like it's going to be this cosmic battle, this cosmic end of everything. It turns out to be the judgment day. God is actually in control, ruling over everything. He pronounces his judgment. Everything is sorted out. And that part of history, though it's future to us, at that point in the writing is done. And now we turn to chapter 21 and we get a glimpse of what happens next. It's the new heaven and the new earth. Let's read it together. Chapter 21, first seven verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Just want to break it down for you in three parts this morning. Let's look at the new earth, then the new city, and then the glory of it all. The new earth, it says, for the first earth, heaven and earth, passes away, and he makes the new altogether new. I don't know what your understanding is of that or how you imagine that taking place. I, in the context that I grew up in the faith, I was really given the impression that at some point the world's going to get so bad that it's all going to burst into a big ball of fire and everything is going to disintegrate. Everything that we know of will be completely gone and God is going to, like we maybe imagine the first creation, He's going to create something altogether new. Later on in my growth, I started hearing some different opinions about this and different thoughts. And I'd like to lay out a few reasons why we should think that God is not going to create something that is altogether new, altogether different, but yet take what is and remake it in such a way that we would say it is altogether made new, but we would say maybe it is this renewed. There's a few reasons for that, and, but I understand the argument, and I'll just say it's debatable which way it's going to go. And, of course, Second Peter chapter 3 talks about uh, the fire coming and dissolving everything, and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. There certainly is a sort of apocalyptic view of the end, how it's all really uh, going to be destroyed, but I think that's a bit more metaphorical than, than literal. I have some reasons for you to think that it will be a little bit more like the earth, the heavens and earth that we currently know, just made right. The Greek word used in both Revelation 21 and what I referenced in 2 Peter, there's a couple different words in the Greek that would communicate new. One is kairos and uh, one is neos. To say something is new, neos, is to say that it is altogether new, just created. There it is. It's brand new. Never was before. Here it is. It's new. But in the text that we're looking at, and the ones that I referenced, it's the word kairos that's used, which has a little different nuance of meaning. What I'm proposing here, renewed. It is new in nature. 
it has a fresh and new beginning. It's not necessarily altogether new and other than what was before. Also have, I don't know if you've ever enjoyed reading through Romans 8, but you certainly could spend a lifetime there and benefit from that. But in that chapter, it talks about the creation groaning. The creation, you know, using this, the, the, the physical world, the physical universe is groaning under the strain of the corruption of sin and longing for and groaning for being renewed and being made new. In the verses that we read, there's a little strange phrase in there. It says, and the sea was no more. So there's a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, and the sea was no more. And I'm realizing here I'm talking with uh, people that live in Phoenix, Arizona, and you're thinking if the sea was no more, this does not sound like a good thing. Where are we going to go on vacation? We love the sea. We need the sea. We're looking for water. We go hours drive through the desert to get to the sea. Heaven does not all of a sudden sound very good to me if there's no sea. But in the context of the letter and for these people reading this, the sea was really a symbol of just danger and trouble and death. The sea is what separates. The sea is where danger comes from. The sea was a threat to life. What's out there? We don't know what's out there. The, the, the monster earlier in Revelation came up out of the sea. All the trouble comes from the sea. So it is a way that the author is using to communicate, look, we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth, but without the trouble, without the danger. It's like going to camp in Yosemite, and there's no bees, and there's no traffic getting in, and there's no mosquitoes, and it's not 100 degrees and 90% humidity there. No, the climate is right. The animals are right. You won't have to use a bear locker to put your food in. Everything will be as it was meant to be. Everything will be renewed. Everything will be right. Everything will work as it's supposed to work. Paul, when he writes, also parallels creation being made new with our resurrection bodies. The idea is this, that when we get to this point in history, when we pass through the judgment, and we're standing with the mark of Christ on us, and we're cleared for no other reason than we are in Christ, at that point we are given new bodies, resurrected bodies. That's going to be a glorious thing. The older you get, the more you appreciate this, that we get new bodies at this point. But the understanding is that when we are there together in heaven, we're still known as we're known. In other words, you're still going to be you, but you're going to have a new body. So there's something carrying over, something the same that was. You will be the same person, the same soul, just given a new body. I don't know if you've heard this story about Augustine, who was apparently quite a, a womanizer before he became a Christian. And then Jesus saves him, he becomes a Christian, but he's walking through town, and one of his old girlfriends meets him on the street. 
And she's elated to see him. She's excited to see him. And Augustine, how are you? How are you? It's wonderful to see you again. And he's acting a little strange at this point, and she can't quite figure it out. And, and so she says, Augustine, it's me. And he responds, and he says, I know, but it's not me. In other words, I've changed. You, you recognize me, but I'm not the same man that I used to be. I'm not him. I'm no longer him. And so this concept of being made new, it, it fits with actually everything about redemption. And everything we read throughout the Bible is, is running with this theme of being renewed. From the very beginning, God creates it all. He creates it good and right. It is wonderful. Satan comes in and tempts humanity. They rebel against God. And at that point, everything becomes corrupted. Eventually, everything, not just the human heart, but all of creation is said to have been bearing the expense of that corruption. And all of a sudden, things are less and less as they ought to be. And God's plan of redemption was to come in, and with all this corruption, He comes in with His judgment, but in and through His judgment is His mercy. So through His judgment, His mercy comes through, and of course we see this ultimately in the cross. Here we look to Christ and we see the judgment of God coming down, but in that judgment comes the mercy of God which saves and redeems so that things that were corrupted are now being made new. Peter talks about this in his sermon in Acts chapter 3 as he's preaching to the crowds, calling them to repentance, calls them to come to Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. You read phrases in the Bible. It's all going to be restored to him. He's going to make all things new. Isaiah prophesies about that life, and it's all described in very earthly, very familiar terms. No more sounds of weeping or distress. No infants dying at childbirth. Old people not living out their days we get to live in the houses that we build. Somebody else doesn't take them away from us. We plant vineyards and we get to eat the fruit of it. We'll enjoy the work of our hands. It says the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion eats straw like the ox and none shall hurt or destroy. Everything will be as it was meant to be. Everything works. You came home from work Friday and you said, why does nothing work? Things don't work. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And yet then, they will be. And God says he's going to wipe away every tear. That's a figure of speech. He means there'll be no reason to cry. See, now we have lots of Kleenex. There's Kleenex here for you because right now there's lots of reasons to cry. I have Kleenex in my office. We have Kleenex in the sanctuary. It's a line item budget. Make sure we have plenty of Kleenex because there's lots of reasons to cry. But when we get to heaven, there's no more reason to cry. There'll be no need for Kleenex. Kleenex is out of business in heaven. God wants us to meditate on a renewed earth. 
heaven is not so far outside the sphere of your imagination that it's no good to you. You can imagine the beauty of the world if you can imagine it without the trouble, without the problems, without the setbacks, without the stuff that doesn't work, without the danger. You can go to Yosemite and you don't have to put your food in a bear locker because the bears are not a problem. You like the bears. The bears like you. You camp with the bears. Everything is right. So the point is, when things are not right now, when things are not working now, here's what equips you and strengthens you for today. God is going to make all things new. You will be in a place where everything is right, everything works, everything is as it should be. Look to that day hope for that day, and find strength for this day. Secondly, there's a new city. In our text, it said, I saw a new city, a new city coming down from heaven to the earth. That's something to think about. It comes down from heaven and brings it to the earth. Now, cities are important and were very important to the people that were receiving this letter originally. They lived in cities, uh, not because they liked the city, but because they had to. Richard Baucom is one of the best commentators on the book of Revelation. He says that the people receiving this letter could hardly imagine life without the city. They needed the city for survival. The economy of the city is how they made their living. But this created the problem for them. This, this was the sort of the, the center of their persecution and their difficulty because to be a part of the city, to fit in with the city, you had to adopt the paganism of the city. So you can get along with us well and you'll make a good paycheck, uh, but here's the temple and here's the goddess and here's the sacrifices and here's how it works here. You want to live here? Here's how you get along. You do this. You go to this meeting. You give money to this. You sacrifice to this. You eat with these people. You do this. The problem was all many of these things were very contradictory to their faith in Christ. Their Christianity did not have room for those things. But for them, the reality was, if I say no to those things, basically, you're not going to make it in this company. Your job is on the line. If you don't toe the line here, you can't work for us anymore. In fact, you can't live in this city if you don't do it our way. Now, their situation was extreme, but I don't doubt many of you in the room face similar situations. You're out there in the workforce. You're trying to make a living. You're in this world economy somehow. And unless you're in some wonderfully isolated context, it's very likely that many of you have jobs where you found that the job itself in the context that you're working in is posing some ethical threat to you or creating some ethical temptation for you where you have to make some difficult choices. Because sometimes lying seems very expedient. Compromises can appear to be very profitable for the time being. 
And you might be in a situation where you've had to face those things and you realize there's no magic answer. Oh, if I just explain it this way, my boss will be fine with it and everything will be fine. Sometimes it's not that way and you're just dealing with the harsh reality. I have to say no to some things and when I say no, it may cost me. Well, that's what they were dealing with. John was writing to some troubled churches, and to some of them he said, you're in trouble, and i got to be honest with you, it's only going to get worse. You need something to help you through these hard times. And here's what it is. I'm going to tell you about the future. And knowing about the future is going to sustain you, help you, equip you, inform how you are supposed to make those decisions, give you hope and faith for those difficult decisions that you'll have to make because cities are wonderful places for lots of flourishing, but they're also places of high corruption. There's a lot of potential for corruption in the city, which is why some of you don't like the city and prefer to stay away from it because lots of bad things happen in cities. Well, it was the same then. But here we have God saying, a new city, the new Jerusalem. This is an image of the redeemed of God, the people of God. This is a city comprised of a population of people from every nation, every tribe, every language, every ethnic group on the planet. God has gathered up his people and put them in a city. So the Bible starts with a garden and places Humanity in a garden, at the end, it's a city. And so some of you are saying, I actually prefer Genesis 1 and 2. I'm kind of a country person. I like the outdoors. I prefer a garden. I don't really care for the city. And so now I'm telling you, yeah, but in the end, we're all going to be packed into a city together. And maybe you're thinking this isn't so appealing. Here's what this means. And you're going to have to stay with me a minute for this to be a good thing. We're going to be together. God is going to gather all his people and we're going to be together in heaven, in a city, in a society where we're working side by side, living side by side, listening, caring, reaching out to, being with, enjoying life together. Now, I know everybody's a little bit different and some of you got some social anxiety issues and some of you are introverted and prefer to be alone some of you love to be with people you just thrive on that and everybody's uh, a little bit different so we've got to find some common ground for that this to actually be appealing to you to actually want to be together in in this city and I, i think i can appeal that whatever your experience is i think i can touch a nerve in your heart that loneliness is not a good thing. True and genuine friendship is a good thing. Maybe you've tasted one or the other or some of both. I think intuitively you know loneliness is hard. And when you're lonely, something inside says this is not the way It's supposed to be. And friendship. Now, if you're here and you could honestly say, I have 
a very good friend. I have a close friend. Folks, if you have one person in your life that you can genuinely and sincerely say, this person is my friend, you need to, right now, count yourself extremely blessed. And thank God for that person in your life. True friendship is rare. But I believe I can touch a nerve in you and say, true friendship is wonderful and good and pleasurable and needed and helpful. To have someone you can talk to that you know will listen, that has a genuine interest in you and your life and your well-being, someone who is patient with you through your shortcomings and will stay the course, someone that you can count on, even if in this life you may have brought many disappointments, even against that person. But for them to stay with you as a friend, for you to realize and, and experience that, that, that true friendship, you, you've got to agree with me. That's a glorious thing. And if we were to be honest, let, you know, you can talk about all kinds of troubles in life, and I'm sure many of you have tasted all kinds of troubles in life, but let's, let's be honest. You know what the most difficult ones are? is the people. When you have relational trouble, when you have relational breakdowns, when you have a falling out, when you can't get along with people, aren't those the worst of troubles? And when it's good, it's very, very good. When you have a friend, then the other troubles seem less, don't they? What was the old saying? You know, troubles shared are half the troubles. And joys shared are twice the joys. Because you're sharing it with somebody. Because the relationships are most important and most meaningful. So please, embrace the city. Be okay with living in the city. It's going to be good because we're going to be together. Now, if you're still struggling with that, the city is also called a bride. Okay, apocalyptic literature, dreams and visions literature can do this. And it does it often in the book of Revelation. It's a city and it's a bride. And that can happen. Maybe you've had a dream and things have changed in the dream. I can imagine having a dream and having a person in that dream and say, that's my dad in the dream. I know it's my dad, and then I look, but it doesn't look like my dad. It looks like one of you. It looks like somebody else. And dreams can do that, and it's, it's okay. In fact, dreams and visions in apocalyptic literature do some of their best work when they start swapping and switching metaphors and images on you. And, they, and it's done on purpose. So earlier in the book, John says, I heard the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then when I looked, I saw the Lamb of God as if slain. So it's okay to hear one thing and see another. It's okay to hear something, and then when you look, and it's something altogether different. So I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. But then later it says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And when he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Come on, let me show you the bride. And you go to see the bride. Then you're going to see the bride. And, then, and there it is, the city. And the reason those 
images are of the same, is to fill out with more color and more nuance and more meaning about the city. The city is like a bride, adorned, beautiful, made right. The whole book ends with this beautiful wedding scene, like a Jane Austen novel, always ends with the wedding. If all of life is just a journey just to get to the wedding, and once you get the guy, well, close the book, it's done. Live happily ever after. And everybody here who's been married for over a year says, yeah, I don't think that's quite how it works. How does the Bible describe the church? Calls us the bride and says that what God is doing in us through you and through me and through us together is that we're being made perfect. We will be at one point, and at this point, Revelation 21, we will be without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle. I want the city to start looking better to you. It's better if the people are better. It's because the people are bad that you don't want to live in the city. But if the people are good, then you want to live in the city. That's the place you want to be. You don't want to live in a cabin in the woods all by yourself then. Let me give you a statement here. You cannot get along well in the church if you do not have a good theology of the church. And you do not have a good theology of the church unless it includes the future of the church. Okay? If you're going to get along in the church, if church life is going to go well, and some of you have been around long enough to know that when church life is going well, life is pretty good. And when church life is not going well, life is not pretty good at all. You cannot get along well in the church unless you have a good theology of the church. If, if you're only going to base how you function in the church with your personal experience in the church, you're missing it. You need a good theology of the church. And your good theology of the church is not good theology of the church unless it includes the future of the church. You have to know that God is at work in you and me, perfecting us, making us more beautiful. You have to know that because you've got somebody in your life right now who's not very beautiful, not very helpful, filled with blemishes, filled with wrinkles, and you're having a hard time with them, and you need something to equip you in dealing with that difficult person, and it's what God is going to do with them that will help you presently with them. The worst thing you can do in any relationship struggle is to turn your back and say, now that person is never going to change. You hear in it, you know, as soon as you lose hope in the work of God's grace in that person, no good can come from that point forward. But if you look next to each other, at one another, you look at that difficult person in your life and you say, one day God's work is going to be complete. I'm going to be with that person in the new city, the new Jerusalem. We're going to be enjoying that city, dancing together, working together, living together, enjoying God's presence together. It's going to be glorious. That 
image, that meditation, that foresight, it will equip you in how to respond with that person today. I often have told myself, I'm going to be dancing with that person in heaven one day, and I keep telling myself that. I'd rather not even be in the same room with that person today, but one day (laughs) we're going to love being together. You're going to love being with me. I'm going to be a better person. Yes, even you could like even me on that day. When we're together in heaven, everything will be made right. All the garbage in my life will be sorted out and dealt with and done with, and I will be made new. And I'm going to be great company. Because Christ's work is complete in me. The city that comes down, we get another description a little bit later in the chapter of kind of a strange thing that John has taken us down and he's given the dimensions of the city. We'll move into our third point here. The presence of God, the same glory, the presence of God. This is, this is really, this is simply the ultimate glory of our future is the presence of God himself being in his presence. So this city is described as coming down and John gives us the measurements. It translates to about 1,380 miles. And he says it's 1,380 miles wide, it's 1,380 miles deep, and it's 1,380 miles high. And you read that and you have to think, okay, I don't get it. Who measures a city by its height? Why would you include in the city the height? What in the world does that mean? I mean, cities are square miles or populations or something, and how wide and how deep, I, I, I get it, but how high? I don't get it. Maybe we're going to be able to fly with our resurrected bodies, and that's the airspace that we're allowed to stay within. I'm not sure. Actually, the writer is giving us this cube. To draw our attention to the one other place in Scripture where there is a space described as a cube. Way back in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, God gave instructions to Moses and said, I want you to make this tabernacle exactly like I tell it to you. Because it's important that you're precise, because you're not making the real thing, you're making a shadow. This is a shadow of something to come so when i give you the instructions it's important that you follow them and set up the tent the tabernacle there's a courtyard and inside the courtyard is a tent it's the holy place this tent is rectangular and it's cordoned off inside so that inside the holy place is a section that is cubed off as the holy of holies and the dimensions are given it's as wide as it is deep as it is high, a perfect cube. And that holy of holies is the place that God said, that's where I dwell. There was a Ark of the Covenant was there, this altar was there, the mercy seat on top of it, and God described that point, that place, as His footstool. He said, this is where I'm going to put my presence. 
And I want all of Israel to know that I'm living here in the middle of you, among you. And that phrase, I will be your God, you will be my people, a a phrase throughout the Scriptures describing God's intent, what is plan, what's God's end game, what is it all about? And you're trying to sort out your life. What is my life all about? What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go to college? Who am I supposed to marry? What is my life about? Think bigger. This is God's big end game plan. I'm going to make a people, gather a people, and I'm going to live in their midst. I'm going to be their God. They are going to be my people. You want to figure out your life? Get that figured out first. Be one of God's people. The rest will fall into place. You'll be able to figure out the rest. But don't set yourself outside the context of what God is doing. Your life will never make sense. Because this is the end game. This is where it's all going. At some point, you'll, if you don't include this, you end up falling out of the plan. We're going to be with God. What do you think of when I say that? We're talking about being in God's presence. Being in heaven and God is present. He's there. What what runs through your mind? Is that a good thing to you? I know for some of you, oh, it it would be. I think that's just the most glorious thought I could possibly have, to be in God's presence. And you've experienced, you've you've got a deposit of the Holy Spirit in you. You've tasted of God's presence. You know this to be a glorious thing. And when I say heaven is going to be God being present, we're going to be fully in God's presence, you're saying that is just the best thing imaginable but I'm not going to presume that that's going through everybody's mind. It's very possible that your view of God is not so positive that you're thinking this is really a good end. It's very possible that it's just such a strange concept, so unknown. I don't even know what to think about that. I don't even know what that means. God's going to be present Here, I'm not sure how that changes things. I'm not sure how to respond to that. I thought it was helpful. There was an interesting story in 1 Kings chapter 10 that I thought gave a very human, uh, identifiable, earthly experience that gives you a little bit of a taste of God's presence. It's a story of the Queen of Sheba setting out on a journey because she heard rumors about King Solomon's greatness. And she said, I hear these rumors, they seem exaggerated to me. They seem over the top. I'm actually going to go and check it out. I'm going to go visit this king and see if what I've heard has any truth to it. So she has her entourage with her, and she goes and she visits King Solomon. And she spends time with him. And she looks at all his riches and his palace and his supplies. And she sits and she talks with him and she keeps asking questions about everything and the scripture says there was nothing that she could bring up that he couldn't answer with his wisdom and she looked around and it said she was so amazed at what she saw that it took her breath away and then she makes this concluding statement where she says how happy must your people be how happy must your men be that serve around you what must it be like it must be so happy and glorious to be around in your presence all the time 
to hear of your wisdom and to see all the glory and the splendor and the blessing and all what's going on here. What an amazing lot in life to be stationed in Solomon's castle. And I read that, and I think, I think that gives me a little handle of meditation for being in God's presence. Can you imagine having the wisdom of the ages right there to talk to, to interact with, to see and behold and to look at and to be amazed at glory and beauty beyond comprehension? If an earthly queen could have her breath taken away by Solomon and know that we are going to be in the presence of someone much greater than Solomon, how much more? Heaven's a good place. You're going to want to be there. You're not going to want to miss this. The alternative is like the opposite of what's happy and glorious, the other is misery. And we're being told this ahead of time. And we're being told this, and they were being told this because you, if you see that and recognize that, you can make your decisions, you can, you can choose your path, you can know whom you serve in advance. So you don't get deceived with, it's like... Uh, I want to make my life really good now, no matter what the future looks like, versus, you know what? I can be okay with some trouble now because I've got a glimpse of what it's going to be then. And the end is so glorious and so good that these present troubles are more than bearable. I always enjoy reading a book by Rodney Stark called The Rise of Christianity. So he's like a sociologist. I don't, I'm not sure that he's a believer. He's just writing about the history of Christianity and asking the question, why did it survive? Why, why did they do so well? And so there's a very good job. And, and he's talking about these early Christians and how they suffered. And they, you know, they were burned at the stake and they were tarred. And they, I mean, it was, it was the worst of times for the church of Jesus Christ. And they went through it and it was, and it was not pretty. And yet many of them went to the flames singing hymns. And he's, he explained it something like this. He said, you know, knowing what they knew about their ultimate destiny, they could make those decisions willingly and rationally because they still realized they had the best deal going. They could have everything confiscated, they could watch their families die. They could have their own lives taken away. And they go down smiling because they knew they had the best deal going. They knew that what was coming far outweighed what they were currently experiencing. Can you at least imagine the power of having hope of heaven and how that will equip and strengthen us for today. That was my goal this morning. I, I want to just 
kind of nudge you, persuade you, think more about heaven. If you never think about heaven, think about it a little bit. If you think a little bit about heaven, think about it more. It will do your soul good. It will strengthen you. You need it. If it's gone out of vogue in the church, let's not let it. That would not be wise. The church throughout Christendom has historically made it and done well because of this, with this. This is a major part of Christianity. We get to go to heaven and be with God. Let's not be so foolish as to think we can sort of reconstruct Christianity to not talk about heaven and hell, because that's not so popular now, because we're all about the here and now, and we inadvertently take away our strength, our equipment that we need for today. Our future is glorious, folks. It's glorious because God has promised to make all things new. Everything that's broken, everything that's troubling, everything that doesn't work, everything that causes harm and pain and hardship, all will be made new. It will be beauty without tragedy, a new earth, a beautiful place that we want to be. It will be glorious because we will be together. You will be made new. I will be made new. We will be like him. And we will rejoice together and love being together because we'll be friends in the truest sense of the word. And ultimately, our future will be glorious because we will be with God. Let me close with this parting thought. that On that day, when we're with him and we're in glory, that we will at that point have the most clearest understanding of the gospel. Now think about this. We, we talk about the gospel, the good news. Christ died to forgive our sins, to set us free, and to have us adopted into his family. This is the glorious truth of the church. We meditate on this. We teach about this. We talk about this. We read books about this. This is massive. This is the center of everything, of who we are, understanding the gospel. But now imagine into the future and we're in heaven and the new heaven and the new earth and the new city and everything is made right and it dawns on us. So this is why Christ was willing to die for us. Oh, so this is part of his motivation. You mean he came, he was willing to suffer and die because he said, Father, I'm willing to go because I want to share what we have with them. I want those people to experience what we have here so I can endure the cross, I can endure the shame of it because I know I'm purchasing people and I'm going to bring them home. So now can you imagine being in the midst of all that glory and realizing, oh, it makes even more sense to me now he purchased us to share this with us let's stand together let's pray father thank you for a wonderful hopeful future and i pray that you take something that was said
from this message and sow it into hearts with a fresh desire to look to, meditate, and place hope in the promised future that you've given us. I, I ask that, it would, that we would understand the necessity of it and realize we're not going to survive well without this. We need this. And maybe even to the point, like Richard Baxter once said, nothing in all my studies has benefited me more than my meditation on heaven. Accomplish it for your glory so that your church will be made strong and equipped for every day in Jesus' name. Amen.